episode 405 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express today do not reflect those of our firms, our institutions, our clients, our family, our friends, or even our pets. Uh, well, we've got a big panel today to cover a lot of news. Tatiana Bolton is here. She's the policy director for R Street Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats Team. Jane Bambauer is here. She's a professor of law at the University of Arizona. Michael Ellis is here. He's formerly with the House Intelligence Committee and the National Security Council, and we're going to need that expertise today. And he's now a visiting fellow at Heritage Foundation. And Jordan Schneider is here, our favorite China tech analyst from the Rhodium Group and host of the excellent China to talk podcast and newsletter. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Jordan, I thought we haven't done a China story for a while, and they are all over cyber policy this week. One of the big stories is that after scaring Wall Street and tech companies with a big regulatory attack on big tech, it looks as though China is maybe backing off, that the Cyberspace Council is pulling in its horns because economic growth is more important. Do you think that's actually happening or is that just a Wall Street Journal take? Yeah, so first we'll do the news and then my big picture take. So on Friday, we had readout of a Xi-led Politburo meeting basically saying, look, we're going to get things under control. We need to support industry. Platform economies are important. We're going to roll out a package to support them. And our sort of big regulatory push needs to be rationalized and settled down. Interestingly, we had a similar statement out of Liu Hu, who doesn't quite have the juice of, of Xi back in mid-March. At that point, stocks jumped 40 to 50%, the, the sort of tech stock universe. But even this time with Xi, you only saw bumps of 10 to 15%. And that's because this is happening from a point of severe weakness in the Chinese economy. The only reason you're, you're seeing signs of regulatory turnaround is because we're having the sort of zero COVID nightmare over the past two months now of Shanghai having been completely locked down and you know Beijing teetering quite uh, you know right along the edge of, of having to be stuck in a similar place. So right now the government is really trying to, or, or some parts of the Chinese government are trying to push every button they can besides what you're seeing on the COVID policy to try to shore up economic growth. You're seeing some really interesting reporting, however, out of the FT just from yesterday on the dynamics in the highest levels of the Chinese government, where you're seeing more and more parts of the system recognize and grasp with the reality that zero COVID is not a sustainable solution for China. But she, uh, who's it was the person whose only opinion matters on this question is still very much convinced that this is the right way to go. So as long as um, as long as he has not sort of really seen the writing on the wall of this policy where anytime you see some sort of outbreak, you have to shut down and kind of shut down almost indefinitely because Omicron is a really different can of beans than Delta. You are going to continue to see the Chinese government flowing around, whether that be with infrastructure money or sort of fiscal or, or, or monetary support or, you know, signaling about easing on regulatory moves in an attempt to do anything they can to keep growth up when sort of the most important thing of people and goods being able to move around is not something that the policymakers can uh, can So Jordan, let me ask you a question out of left field. I the obviously the Chinese Communist Party members measure themselves first and foremost against the mistakes that Russia has made that they haven't made. And I can't help wondering if a lot of people are looking at the 
Putin's willingness to do really crazy, reckless things and put everybody else's funds at risk for a gain that's, you know, pretty personal. And they're saying to themselves, so that's what happens when you put all of your power in one guy. I wonder what lessons there are for us. Do you see any, well, you wouldn't see a sign of it. Do you think that's a plausible concern from Xi's point of view that Putin is going to make people less enthusiastic about giving him more power? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's the dynamic in as much as I think the sort of questions around she's she and governance over the past three months as COVID zero has really run into what seems to be a dead end are probably the loudest they've ever been. You've recently seen Wei Jianfan, a very prominent PE investor who's gone to bat for the Chinese government of late, writing, you know, pro Xinjiang crackdown, you know, pro Hong Kong takeover articles, saying, you know, semi-publicly that what's happened is a, is an absolute travesty. But, you know, if you put yourself in Xi's shoes for a second, you're really between a rock and a hard place. Because if you take the sort of death numbers that came out of COVID being able to spread dramatically in, in, in Hong Kong, which has, you know, roughly similar levels of vaccination rates among the elderly, probably a, a, a better healthcare system than what you're facing across China, you're looking at one to two million <sighs> dead if they pull the plug on COVID zero. So yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to shut down an economy sort of indefinitely and have all these snarls and have these, you know, horrific stories of old people not being able to get their medicine because the entire city is locked down and people going hungry because there aren't enough delivery workers and whatnot. But What's your alternative? Your alternative is, you know, going through a version of what the rest of the world had to do with having lots of people's grandparents yeah. die. And, you know, the question if you're she is like, what is the worst hit for, you know, my position as a leader and, you know, the CCP's, uh, you know, confidence in, in, in general? And it's a really hard decision, but it seems increasingly to be one that's going to be made for him. You know, you can, because I think, you know, having the country continuing having the half of the country continuing to be shut down indefinitely going forward is just not a way is not a sustainable so did I, did I see something that said that the Politburo is in a little bit of a panic about the possibility that U.S. growth uh, might exceed China's for one year this year I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it if it is, you know, of course, there are, you know, serious linkages between the two economies and and China shutting down is going to be painful from a U.S. growth perspective. But I think the broader narrative of the world's kind of being convinced that China is going to have higher GDP growth than the U.S. over the next 30 years is something that is is certainly going to be called into question more and more in the coming months. And years. All right. Well, we jumped to China, but Ukraine continues to smolder and burn. Uh, Tatiana, the, <clears throat> we keep seeing stories about how important cyber war is in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, and there were more stories this week. I'm still not completely persuaded, but Wired had a story saying that Russia's being hacked at an unprecedented scale, which is fair because they had more or less escaped ransomware, at least. How persuasive was that story that this was a big deal? I think that it is a big deal. Certainly going from nothing to constant attacks on your infrastructure is difficult for any country. 
And I think as some of the other stories and the reports coming out from Microsoft over the course of the last week or two have shown, it's also changing the way and the tactics with which Russia is conducting the war in Ukraine because they're having to go and defend themselves and their networks much more so than they have been in the past. It leaves all of their cyber agencies more focused on defense than offense, which is exactly, I think, what we were going for, right? And all of the, you know, Ukraine's IT army and all of the support from NATO allies and the US to Ukraine have been trying to do, right? Put more resources on the ground and from abroad focused on Russia, making sure that the Russians can't just continue to sort of assail Ukraine in the cyber world as well as kinetically. So I think it's a big deal. But I think we have to still keep in mind that one, the majority of the destructive attacks, and I think there's a few people online who have made the point that the the destructiveness of these attacks has been slightly overblown because we're not seeing the destruction of, say, power plants or electrical grids or their water system, right? We're not seeing like significant critical infrastructure impacts. And I think we also need to remember that it's a collection uh, operation as much as it is a destructive operation, at least from the Russian side going into Ukraine. They're trying to get as much information as they can. And perhaps they took a page from China, right? Seeing how effective their campaigns have been against the United States and try to use that in Ukraine to gather intel in order to be able to use in order to more successfully conduct their kinetic operations. Yeah, I, I think the Russians are learning something that that we've sort of learned thirty years ago with all of the mysterious fires all through Russia and the uh, attacks on their system. It really sucks to have an enemy who speaks your language because they, they could they they it's just a lot easier. There there are fewer barriers to entry when you're carrying when they're carrying out attacks. Uh, uh, true, and, true. And the Russians, you know, the Russians had to work pretty hard to find an enemy who spoke their language, but they managed to do it. Uh, uh, don't, Stuart, yeah, give, don't give count credit where it's due. Uh, oh, <laughs> sorry, I'd say uh, uh, give give credit where it's due. On this podcast in February, I think I said that the uh, Ukrainians wouldn't have much offensive capability because they've been thoroughly penetrated by the Russian services. Turns out that was wrong. They've been doing, you know, at least fighting them to a draw, if not, you know, as Tatiana mentioned, going on the offense in some perspective. So kudos to them and kudos to the Cybercom teams helping them. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the biggest things we've learned is that Ukraine is extremely resilient and honestly, a great example for anyone fighting in the cyber domain and to be fair, also in the kinetic uh, realm, that resilience and sort of tenacity can win the day, even when faced uh, with an extremely capable adversary. And we do have to remember that while Russia is, I think, you know, the people there are human and real. So they do still have the same restrictions that every other country has in terms of resources and capacity in order to conduct some of these attacks. They are an extremely capable adversary. Yeah, I look, I, I think we only get the Ukrainian side of the story. And we need to, to understand that all of Ukraine's victories are covered lovingly. And the grinding advance of a brutal Russian offensive isn't getting covered as a success, but it may turn out to be a success. I think, you know, how this is going to turn out is still very much in doubt. There's no way they're going to be exporting anything through Odessa soon. So or bringing anything in. It's going to be a very tough war for Ukraine. And how it's going to turn out, I don't know. But yes, it, it is. Nonetheless, it's, it's nice to root for an underdog who is performing so well. 
All right, let's turn in national security to, you know, what is usually a pretty boring event, but in this case, it sparked some really, some surprisingly diverse stories, which is the Director of National Intelligence released an annual report on transparency in their surveillance authorities. And there were a lot of different stories. Everybody looked at a different part of the elephant, Michael. Uh, What kinds of things did people pull out of this report? Yeah, well, you know, this is the definition of a Friday afternoon news dump, right? Putting out the annual transparency report, but still people noticed. And there's a lot of interesting nuggets in here. You know, one is a takeaway, like last year's report, COVID had a significant impact on, on the use of these national security authorities. People aren't traveling the same way. People aren't going to in-person events. And turns out that has ramifications for espionage. The number of probable cause orders approved by the, the FISC is you know, roughly a third of what it was in 2019. You know, so I think we'll see a rebound in 2022 as things have have started to open up. And I'm sure in next year's report, there'll be breathless reporting of a huge uptick in approvals by the FISA court. But really, I think that we can chalk that up to the pandemic variation. So that was the what what you might call cl- FISA classic, right? Those are the, the things yes, where they get a warrant. <clears throat> they say there's a, an agent of a, of a foreign power in the United States, and we want to surveil them. And a lot of that is, you know, brick and mortar institutions that are agents of foreign powers. And some of them are real live human beings. And as you say, those human beings are not spending as much time traveling into the United States, especially the terrorist wannabes. What about 702, which is the modern version of FISA? Yeah, so so more 702 targets, which you'd expect along with the COVID trend as well, right? If more activity is occurring online instead of in person, then there'll be more 702 targets, uh, you know, more non-U.S. persons outside the United States that NSA, CIA, and FBI can can gather intelligence about through 702 authorities. The number that draw a lot drew a lot of press attention was that the FBI for the first time attempted to give a number for their U.S. person identifier queries of unminimized 702 data. For years, FBI is impressed to give this number. You know, just how many times are they looking into that pool of 702 data for information about an American? For years, FBI has said, we can't tell you that number. Our systems aren't set up to track it. Now we know why. it turns out they really can't. (laughs) They really really proved it this time. So now they decided to to give a number about 3.4, well, possibly as many as 3.4 million times. And well, you know, I, I don't often agree with Ron Wyden, but I think he actually nailed it with his quote on this, that that number is quote, either highly alarming or entirely meaningless. And it's probably the latter. You know, how do they get to that 3.4 million number? Well, you know, their systems don't allow them to separate out when they have a batch query. So if there's 100 different identifiers they're looking for in the 702 data, and one of those identifiers, you know, imagine an IP address or an email address belongs to a U.S. person, the other 99 are foreigners. Well, that counts as 100 queries because they can't separate how many were the Americans and how many were the foreigners. If they have a, a query set on you know, a series of US IP addresses, as it appears that they probably did, close to 2 million of those 3.4 million queries came from one single FBI investigation of Russian hacking. So they probably had you know, queries set up with a number of IP addresses for US victims of, the, of that Russian attack. You run a query with 50 different IP addresses once an hour, you know, every day for a month, and you're gonna end up with an astronomical number of queries. So you know, a, a lot of attention was, you know, pointed on this 3.4 million query number. Ultimately, I don't think it means a lot. And I wonder whether it would have been better for them to, for FBI to continue its its prior line and just avoid giving a number entirely rather than put out a number that's 
garbage. So the one other thing <clears throat> that I noticed is the FBI has national security authority to go through the database, and that's what their 3.4 million searches were for. They also have criminal authority if they go to the FISA court and ask for authority to do that. And it looks as though they never asked, but they did do four searches that they shouldn't have done. I'm kind of guessing that was a mistake, but they're getting beaten up a little for having not used their authority at all through the Fisk Court and just had at least four people who conducted what amounted to a criminal search of this 702 database. Yeah, and the press reporting indicates that those four searches were sort of an honest screw-up, that you know some FBI agents thought that the, the queries had been authorized as part of a different investigation. The details are a little sparse, but they actually hadn't been authorized, and I'm sure the court took to, took the FBI to task for that. You know, the other you know, stat that you know in terms of what number should we actually care about? 3.4 million number is not a number we should care about. But you know, they did give us in this report the number of times that there was an FBI evidence of a crime only query in Section 02 data, right? So the number of times there there's no foreign intelligence purpose. They're looking for evidence of a crime using a U.S. person identifier in, in 702 data. And that's, I think, the scenario that, you know, civil libertarians rightly worry about, right? You know, this information is collected for a foreign told purpose, and now the FBI is going to go look in it to see if a U.S. person has committed a crime. That happened 12 times between December 2020 and November 2021. So, you know, certainly an issue that deserves further scrutiny, and I'm sure the congressional committees will be looking at next year as they grow closer to 702 reauthorization, but we're a long ways off from the millions of backdoor searches that Ron Wyden worries about. Well, maybe that was the purpose of the uh, the 3.4 million searches. Now they get to say, oh yeah, those criminal searches, they were less than 0.001% of our uh, uh, searches. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if 3.4 million is even the real number, which it probably isn't. Which yeah. is uh, so, surely not. All right. Uh, yeah. Well, it, uh, the, the audience has been very patient. But yes, we are going to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. Jordan, um, I will ask you about the Jeff Bezos tweet in which he said about Elon Musk's Twitter deal. Gee, does that give the Chinese government more authority over the public square in the United States, given how big a deal China is to Tesla? That's a fair question, isn't it? Yeah, and the answer is maybe, which is a kind of a scary one. Uh, you know, having listening to Stuart arguing over the years about content regulation just from a sort of like dem lib fight perspective wasn't enough. Now to have this extra wrinkle is really concerning. I mean, one of the things about sort of Facebook and Twitter is that they don't have presences in China, right? So that, and they're not going to anytime soon. So you haven't kind of had to think about it from that perspective of, you know, to what extent are sort of, China adjacent concerns going to be influencing the way that these platforms are moderated for a number of years now, basically since Zuckerberg really got the message that, you know, letting Xi give his kid a Chinese name wasn't going to get him into China. But it's a real question. I mean, you know, on the one hand, look, like, like, Elon is also a major supplier for the U.S. Defense Department. And I think it's pretty fair to say that nothing, no SpaceX related decisions have been appreciably impacted by Chinese pressure over the past five years. But Tesla does have an enormous uh, percentage of its revenue that comes from China. And this is one of the, you know, the world's most important growth markets for electric vehicles. And I don't think he's trying to get that shut off on anytime soon. 
The broader question, which I'm curious for everyone else's perspective on, is like to what extent Elon in his push for sort of free speech is going to expend that free speech to state-owned media organizations and you know not being so focused on state-led botnets and all of the sort of nefarious activity that comes out of China, Russia, Iran, and, and other countries around the world that you know the, this current pre-Elon Twitter regime has decided was verboten. But Elon, in his new framing of uh, what is and isn't acceptable speech, could take a slightly different. All right, opinion. Jane, you want to jump in? Yeah. So, I mean, so, so I take it, Jordan, that you, what you're asking is even if we have the no bot rule, that an expansive version of free speech on Twitter would still allow lots of actually, you know, people generated content that comes from state owned media. Is that the nature of your question? Well, it's two things. I mean, I mean, I think, first of all, like, Elon seems like he's about to fire a lot yeah, of people. Totally. And, you know, it takes a lot of effort and money and really well-paid engineers to start to kind of combat combat the onrush, which includes sort of spam and, you know, child porn, but also includes uh, state-led campaigns. And Twitter has done a reasonably active job, it seems, yeah. at least from the outside of pushing back on that. And I'm curious sort of what like Wild West Twitter, even if it's not, you know, Elon cowing to China Twitter ends up uh, looking like in yeah. meeting for global discourse. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people worry about Musk possibly being kind of naive about how much effort it takes to engage in content moderation. That's basically a, a you know practical necessity if you're going to keep eyeballs and an audience on, on Twitter. Mm. I just have my doubts that he's actually that naive. And I don't know, you know, I, I can't predict how much cutting and, you know, firing he's going to do. But my understanding of his various tweets, you know, reading the same tea leaves that we're all trying to read, is that <laughs> he's basically saying that within the range of positions that one can take while, while keeping Twitter a viable social media outlet that people want to come to, you know, that isn't a cesspool. He's going to take a position on content moderation that is maybe more automated and also less, you know, unfriendly to conservative voices. You know, it may be trickier to get to that point than anyone thinks, but I, I just, I doubt that he actually thinks it's going to be a cakewalk. So that's... Tatiana? Yeah. If I can jump in here, say what you will about Elon Musk, but I think he is extremely smart, a genius. And so... If we take that, you know, as a given and sort of acknowledge all of the very successful businesses he's run, Tesla, PayPal, SpaceX, boring company, right? Sort of all kind of cutting edge companies that are moving the ball forward. I think we have to acknowledge that like he is not going to take actions that are going to undermine the business. Right. I think he wants to take actions that will, you know, make Twitter more like what he thinks it might be. And, you know, from the outside, maybe we don't know sort of how messed up Twitter is on the inside. Maybe he sees things we don't. I don't know. He's he's insane that way. Maybe he does. And one, he's still going to be restrained by U.S. law. Right. Uh, including on things like CSAM. He still, I think, is going to learn, just like Jane, you were just saying, how difficult content moderation is. I think he's just being a firebrand at this point. And once he gets in there, I think we're going to see a whole lot less change than people are fearing. I don't agree with the way in which he's treated the employees of Twitter and the people he's lashed out on about their content moderation practices, because I, I just think that's a, a bad way to manage. But I think we've all seen his you know, tendencies towards 
not being the best leader, but he does get results. So, you know, I'm skeptical that he's going to actually make such changes that are going to force people off the platform. Yeah. Stuart, what job do you want in the, uh, in the new <laughs> Elon Twitter, uh, uh, if, if if the uh, job of chief privacy skeptic is open, I'll take it. <laughs> Michael. Tatiana, to your point, there's some interesting analysis that for the Twitter deal to make sense financially for Elon Musk, that he's got to cut their costs pretty significantly so he can use the cash flow coming in to service the, all the debt that, that they're taking on as part of the acquisition. And that in order to cut the costs, the easiest way to do that would be to get rid of about 20% of the employees. That's the, the most efficient way to do it because Twitter spends far more per employee than every other you know, similarly situated tech company. So maybe being abusive to the employees on Twitter is actually part of the master plan to drive them out, you know, save on costs that way. Yeah, you don't have to pay severance. <laughs> and look, he was right. It was unforgivable to shut down the New York Post over uh, a story that turned out to be true. And he's right to be critical of that decision. That the woman who was responsible for that is taking that personally, and, and I understand why. But I, I, I think he's perfectly entitled to make that kind of a, a criticism. That is, I think, what he's doing here. He is positioning the brand so that it is more friendly to conservatives. It wouldn't take much uh, uh, to tweak its moderation policies so that it didn't just really drive conservatives crazy. Uh, probably just dealing with the notion that speech that refuses to to recognize LGBTQ sensibilities is hate speech and a, a few other things would address the conservative anger. And then he could continue to apply most of the other policies and get a, a, a big bump in his audience or at least a reduction in the amount of Soros he's going to get. Although I think he's going to get Soros. So the, the, he, a, every decision that is made now will be criticized for having allowed harassment. All of the tactics that drove Facebook into being much more aggressive are going to be used piecemeal against uh, Musk, and sooner or later, it'll have an impact, that's my guess. So there may be less change than we think, but he will be a different face on that change and it will occasionally strike from Olympus uh, when somebody makes a mistake. Look, if nothing else, it'll be entertaining. It's already entertaining. I just love watching all the people on the left who told me that I should just stop worrying about, you know, the idea that there could possibly be a, uh, any bias here going on uh, uh, TikTok and, and Twitter and saying, oh, my God, they'll be able to shut down our uh, campaigns. They'll be biasing all of their uh, decisions against us. Musk is going to change all the, the way the country is governed. And you kind of say, really, I kind of get the feeling this is maybe what you thought was happening beforehand, too. So it's sort of fun to watch. But I don't think that Musk is going to change the nature of the country or its government's system. Uh, all right, I, Jane, while we're on bias, is Gmail biased against the GOP? Gosh, I'm actually quite surprised to say that based on this study that was just uh, released by some computer science researchers at North Carolina State, uh, it looks like it. So let me explain the study a little bit because I think it's worth understanding the details. So what they did was they started a whole bunch of accounts, like over 100 uh, fresh new email accounts on Gmail, Outlook, and Yahoo, Yahoo Mail. And then they subscribed those email accounts to a whole bunch of presidential, Senate, and congressional candidate websites. Actually, th this I think is the biggest flaw: is that they seem to have, they seem to have subscribed 
all of the accounts to all of the candidates. And I thought that was a little weird, but otherwise it seems like a very good study. So, so what they found, they wanted to understand how the spam filters work and Yahoo and Outlook came out looking pretty okay, like non-biased in terms of the partisan valence. But Gmail put 8% of the Democratic campaign emails into spam, and it put a whopping 67% of the Republican emails into spam. And then when the researchers looked at what happened when the you know, users, the fake users of these accounts, fake accounts, interacted with the emails, you know, either read them or moved them from spam to the inbox or from the inbox into spam, some of that bias was reduced, but not not all of it. And uh, I thought for sure that what it was going to wind up being was that the content of Republican emails is different. Maybe this shows my own political bias, but I thought that, you know, there'd be more aggressive attempts to donate and just, you know, kind of obnoxious content. But they actually controlled for that in a in, in what's um, called a propensity score matching analysis, where they actually looked at the content and matched emails across the, you know, the left and right and ran the study again. And it basically didn't matter. So that's pretty damning. I actually looked for defenses of Gmail spam filter and haven't seen any yet. I'll be curious to see how Google defends it. But TechDirt, to give an example, really slammed like Fox News for giving this any attention, saying that they focus all they focus only on Gmail and don't even bother talking about Outlook and Yahoo. And it's like, well, that's because they weren't biased. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yes, it's I mean, I think it's pretty startling. Yeah, my memory is that the disparity between Democrats and Republicans got wider and wider the closer you got to the election, if I remember right. Yes, over time, it actually got wider. Yeah. Yeah. So it is is very hard to find an explanation for that. Although it looks as though, is it Gmail paid very little attention if you moved stuff from your spam filter, spam uh, email to your regular email, whereas other services paid more attention to that. Oh, I, I thought, you know, may, maybe I read this too quickly. I thought it was the opposite. Yeah, you're, right, actually, you're right. You're, you're yeah, right. They so, actually corrected much more than the others, but yeah. not enough to undo the bias. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, okay. this, this is very hard to explain, except that someone thought they could get away with doing it. Well, I'm not sure that's what it means. Because I I also don't know that that's... Yeah, go ahead. Because, because, like, I think what this goes to show is what people have been complaining about for years about algorithmic bias, right? When you set up algorithms, you are imbuing them with the developer's bias, right? And so if you look at across tech companies, most... Uh, more often than not, their employees trend more liberal. They also trend more male and they also trend very white. And so out of that, I think, you know, there's been studies upon studies about how there's been, there's algorithmic bias in a number of different products that are put out by tech companies. And I think this is just another iteration of what tech bias or algorithmic bias can look like in tech companies. And so, um, just I'm going to push you on that, Tatiana. Yeah. What what possible algorithm would you choose that would ha- produce that disparity? You could say, 
hey guys, what do you think? Is this likely to be spam? And and, and you read the first paragraph and everybody says, yeah, that's spam. Uh, but I don't think that's how they do it. Uh, uh, so- I mean, I don't know how, you know, I am not a developer and I didn't create Google's um, spam filters, right? But I, I think it's the same way in which you get racial bias in algorithms. It's not like people are going around saying like, oh, well, that person's black and so therefore we should deny them loans or that, you know, we can tell by something in our algorithm that because of where you live or who you're friends with or whatever, that you're black and therefore, you know, you shouldn't be allowed into this admission into a particular college. But that does in fact happen based on algorithmic decision-making at, to some extent, right? And so, and so all I'm saying is that that isn't intentional. It's based on the ways in which we structure algorithms also, by the way, leading to the point that Tesla and Elon Musk should not go and try to automate more things on Twitter because you need that human element to review what's happening in algorithms. So the researchers do know quite a bit about how spam filters are designed. And so that propensity score matching exercise that I mentioned, they coded the emails according to the things, not just the emails, but also like the factors of the email accounts that might matter. They coded all of that to try to account for the way uh, design might unintentionally produce this and still found this big effect. I, I still think there might be kind of an innocent explanation that has to do with the fact that all of the email accounts were subscribed to both left and right candidates and that there may be some, uh, you know, that there may be some spam filtering that has to do with, you know, inconsistent emails that come in that that seem to suggest that the same person couldn't subscribe to both. I, like, I think there are some explanations. But more generally, I mean, I think Stuart knows this about me, but I'm a little skeptical of claims that the algorithm designers bias that personal bias winds up getting encoded Uh, a lot of the examples of like race bias it all depends on what the kind of baseline you're comparing it to that you know it, it, it it's a bit complicated but a lot of times it's the objective function, you know, the, the, the algorithm still performs well on the objective function, and we just don't like the disparate impact that that causes. So, so I don't know, I, I think this is a mystery. I'm not sure I would go, I would say, you know, what Stuart says that this must be intentional. But the, the research for what it's worth tried to eliminate the possibility that could it, it could be unintentional. Let me, let me, let, let me try. Way, I will add, I don't just think it's developers. I think it's also like the data sets that algorithms are trained on, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot of different could... factors. Okay, so uh, maybe I maybe I can maybe I can uh, uh, satisfy you both. Suppose that uh, the GOP campaign messages sounded themes that, for other reasons, Google was suppressing because they questioned the election and you know who was really elected, et cetera, et cetera, and therefore had already started to use tools, including the spam filter, to downgrade the reach of speech of that kind. And so their hostility to the message of the GOP translates, not surprisingly, to hostility to GOP Gmail. Uh, And and that that would be be... explosive. I mean, that would just be shocking, I think. 
It would be shocking. Well, I wouldn't be shocked. I can't. I don't know. To me, it'd be a little unsurprising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really? That's, that, yeah, there we go. Purging I, email based on content. Well, but because they, of... yeah, it's because it's because it's spammy. Because it's saying things that you know, no one, no one would could could want to get this email. So maybe that's the answer. All right. Uh, well, I, it will be very interesting. The Republican National Committee is going to the FEC and asking them to investigate. And of course, by a vote of two to two or three to three, they'll probably fail to do it because they're divided uh, equally on a partisan basis. But there may be some basis. Uh, you know, failure to deliver mail might be a problem. Maybe you're protected uh, by federal law, Section 230. But I think if you don't deliver mail, you're well, disappointing the customers. So if you well, are a customer... Delivered. It's just downgraded, right? Okay, but but if, if <laughs> it, uh, I could easily imagine a lawsuit by a conservative yeah. who has a Gmail account. I come think of it, so what I do, uh, except I hate getting all this mail. I uh, <laughs> that that sues Google for failing to deliver mail I wanted to get in a fashion that I was likely to see it. And and you, you only have to get discovery. You don't have to actually win. You only have to find out what they were saying to each other about this. Yeah, so for, for me, this passes the test of my wanting to know more, even though I'm usually skeptical of claims of bias, you know, absolutely, without a lot of evidence. Absolutely. So. Well, you yeah. know, if the Republicans take the House, there'll be an investigation for sure. And they'll have two years to see if they can get their subpoenas enforced. All right. Orrin Kerr had a, what I can only describe as a freak out on Twitter about this decision from the Ninth Circuit, U.S. versus Rosenau. And Michael, why don't you start us out? He's very upset about it, and I'm having trouble mustering much outrage. Uh, Stuart, this struck me as a, a law professor outraged that the rest of the world did not find the issue that he was writing lengthy articles about as fascinating as he did. You know, probably not uncommon among law professors. This is a, a Ninth Circuit case in which it, it appears there was a, a slew of different you know, Fourth Amendment related claims by the, the criminal defendant. And on appeal, you know, one, of, one of the issues the Ninth Circuit disposed of was a, a claim that the government's preservation requests to internet uh, service providers constituted an unconstitutional seizure of the defendant's data. And the Ninth Circuit kind of, kind of gave that the back of the hand that the, the preservation request, because it didn't deprive the defendant of any sort of possessory interest in his data, was not a seizure. This struck me as a fairly uncontroversial point, but as you know, Oren Kerr, you know, probably has a couple chapters in a book devoted to this very point and can't imagine that a court would dispose of it in a sentence or two. Although upon further digging in, it appears that the issue wasn't briefed very thoroughly either. So you can hardly blame the panel for not uh, writing a treatise on an, an issue the parties didn't really deal with. Yeah, that's my, my guess is this is one of those things where there was a shotgun appeal. None of the, the arguments looked very good. And so you just go through and you tick them off, say, no, no, no to that, no to that, no to that, no to that. And, you know, they devoted a... a page or two to this uh, uh, argument, but it isn't very appealing. Uh, at the end of the day, the government just says, hey, don't throw that away. We might need it. And obviously, they need to be able to do that. And the idea that you have to get a court order to just preserve that, it's not its not intuitive. Oren's usually much, much more even keeled than this. And I just think he, for one reason or another, this became his hobby horse. Uh, and uh, uh, he's disappointed. And, and gosh, the, the panel even cited one of his articles elsewhere <laughs> in the opinion. So he, he, 
He can't be that <laughs> upset about it. All right. Yeah. Well, let's let's well, ask a law professor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Michael, I was going to say I could hear you when you were talking about law professors. Um, yeah, and, and and Oren doesn't usually strike me though as someone who yeah gets so deep in the weeds that he doesn't realize what's actually important. I I think, I, I, I mean, I just was surprised at Oren's reaction because you know, as brief as the treatment may have been, the court explicitly said that they're dismissing this issue because it was a retrospective rather than a prospective request and that the police didn't access the information until they got a warrant. And although, I mean, reading between the lines, there was kind of the assumption that the request was linked to the immediate action of going to get you know, some process. And so I, I just thought that they were deciding a much narrower issue than Oren suggested because Oren's worried about kind of long-term preservation requests, which by the way, I actually don't, I, I, I think that might be justifiable as well, but that's a much harder issue than just these short-term, basically like litigation holds, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah, and no, no, look, I've, I've had clients who uh, the FBI has served what amounted to preservation orders or subpoenas on them for bank account records, and the bank treats that as a signal that this guy is, is bad, and we should do whatever we can, including kicking him off of our service, and I'm sure that it... it provoked a deeper investigation by the social media platform. So it is a signaling mechanism that produces bad consequences. But I, I, I don't see that you're addressing but it wouldn't, that. But it wouldn't if they asked for everything to be preserved all the time, right? <laughs> Fair <laughs> so. enough. Fair enough. Tatiana, do you want to jump in? Well, I think that I, you know, I'm not a law professor. I don't know why he got so you know, worked up. But I think that it goes to the underlying issue of privacy being a significant unresolved issue in American discourse. We have uh, data security, data privacy provisions and laws drafted, and it's the discussion is ongoing on the Hill. I think that all of these questions just haven't yet been sufficiently resolved. And so, you know, I think Warren wanted to hear more from the court to get more of a determination on Americans, American protections, right? I, and I, they just didn't give him that, mostly because, you know, you know, Congress can't agree. The administrations can't agree. Regular American consumers don't know what they want or how to get it. So, you know, I think it's so just, it's a bigger question. No I think we just have a lot of outstanding though, that The Europeans um, are here. enthusiastic about litigating or, and legislating in on privacy. And they've, they showed that this last week in two ways. Uh, Court of Justice ruling on uh, what amount to class actions to enforce privacy. And also the Digital Services Act more or less came into focus. There's still a little vagueness. And these are... BFDs, right, Jane? Yes, yeah. So for GDPR enforcement, the EU has taken a, an approach that's sort of meant to be a middle ground on the way toward class actions that we have in the US, where there are these like private nonprofits that represent consumers, basically. And so the European Court of Justice decided that these consumer protection organizations can bring actions against companies for GDPR violations, like whether, you know, Facebook's consent mechanisms are, are sufficient and that sort of thing. And then if we combine that with some legislation that is going to go into effect in uh, the summer, it means that basically these nonprofits can bring 
what's the equivalent of class actions in any of the EU member states to enforce GDPR. Which is a big so deal a in big part. Deal. This, this is a big deal in part because under GDPR, you can say, I'm declaring, if you're a US company, I'm declaring that my headquarters is in this country, and that's the country that's going to make decisions about my GDPR claims. I, and now I, that matters less. I, no, yeah. no, or not maybe all. not at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's, I think that there was um, criticism in the EU that enforcement was very slow and bogged down because of the one-stop shop or one-shop stop <laughs> rule. And so the courts have fixed that problem, but now they have a much bigger problem, which is that GDPR enforcement is going, I think it's going to look very ugly. I mean, in a way, I'm actually happy about this because what frustrates me about European privacy law is that it talks a big game, but I don't think consumers actually want the full implications of what the law requires. And so getting American style enforcement of a rule that's just on a policy level wrong, it's much too protective of privacy and burdensome is, I think, going to be useful. It'll be a useful sort of study for the rest of the world. And I, but I, I'm I, even more surprised about the DSA. Yes. Oh, sorry, go so ahead. I, I, on, okay. on this one, I, I, will, I will just say, I think finally I've been talking about the importance of having equivalent enforcement on Chinese suppliers of social media platforms. This is going to bring it. I think if you were a dissident, representing dissident Chinese in Europe, you now have an opportunity to bring a lawsuit over WeChat or TikTok or any of the, the relatively successful Chinese companies, and you can bring it in Poland, which is going to say, oh, a communist government would like to know what we think of their data collection practices. We're glad to give you advice. So I, I think this is going to produce some considerable chaos in the law in the EU and high time too. But Yeah, that's an interesting angle. Digital Services Act, it's, you know, it, they wear us down. It just, it's endless, the process by which they kind of slowly introduce these crazy ideas. And uh, you say, oh, well, it won't happen for five years and then for four years. And then it gets a little crazier. We're seeing that process with the Digital Services Act, aren't we? But I will also add that part of the reason that we are so surprised and uh, caught off guard by some of the decisions that Europe is taking is that the United States has not taken its own position. And we are not like seriously engaging. I mean, I, I, we're signing agreements like international agreements. Yes. Like, okay. But we're not taking, Congress is not taking action. And without that, it's hard for businesses and consumers to, and, you know, and people who are engaging with the regulators on the EU side of GDPR. And now these two laws, um, oh, to, Tatiana, I just to don't have meaningful conversations we don't have our own position. We don't have a law and we're happy with that for now, uh, except in California. Well, Congress, Congress has chosen not to, to, to pass a law. And, and the administration has said, look, if you want Europe's law to so, apply to you when your data comes to the United States, then uh, you can sign up for one or another of these agreements. Now, the agreement, the last one, the Privacy Shield, has been struck down, but they're about to negotiate another. And the U.S. negotiating position is it's a bad idea to impose these rules across the board and to cut off um, uh, data flows because you don't like U.S. law. But we will meet you halfway, uh, and eventually they'll end up with an agreement that says, 
because, yeah, companies that want the Europeans to lay off them can sign up to apply European law even when they handle this data in the United States. That's a coherent position. And, I, and you know, you're saying what the New York Times said. Well, the only way for us to catch up with Europe is to adopt their damn laws and apply them here. No, 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 no. I'm not saying we need to adopt their laws. I'm saying we need to have our own American position. We need to determine what we, on our end, believe is a coherent position on data minimization, data use, transfer, all of that. And I would argue that many organizations and corporations who I've well, talked to about this well, issue sure. are so uh, want a privacy law, a federal yeah, large privacy law in the do. United States. Yeah, large for sure. corporations, organizations, and consumer advocates. And yeah, but uh, so I, I think yeah, well, and, I think and, and, and consumer in a privacy law is well. politically unviable. Um, what people actually want is to be promised the moon and still have the same cheap services that they're used to, and that's the problem. That's the problem right now with the state of well. Uh, so I think on the political side, on the Hill, the Cantwell and Wicker bills are 80% the same. So I think that, you know, we do have some agreement. We just, and I think over the course of the last year, they've gotten even closer. Blumenthal and Blackburn have also been talking and have come to an even closer negotiation. So that's not going to make, that's not going to make any less Honestly, crazy. we're getting very, they're, they're very gonna close. Keep, they're going to they're say, you see, if we just stay crazy long enough, the Americans will join us. Uh, and that's what I think the lesson of the Digital Services Act is, that there is no end to crazy in Europe. Yeah, so really quickly, the Digital Services Act is a new, like, sort of a new set of rules, a set of laws in the EU that's as big a deal, I think, as the GDPR, but it's about, well, among other things, content moderation, uh, basically any digital service. It also includes, um, you know, companies like Amazon or retail and whatnot. But what's really striking is the requirements that platforms, major platforms, are going to have to do. So they're going to have to put a lot of information about how they content moderate in their terms of service and notify users of changes, which means we may get just a constant barrage of notices about how algorithms have changed. They have to build mechanisms for users to let the platforms know about prohibited content. So basically user generated flagging of, of prohibited content, which means, you know, hate speech and other things in the EU. Then they have basically equivalent to like a 24 hour takedown period. And they have to notify users when their content has been taken down and provide an appeal mechanism. And if the users don't agree with the appeal outcome, they have to pay for dispute resolution. They have to engage with and create special channels for government approved trusted flag. So the government will choose trusted flaggers who then have special access, special, you know, special voice into this content moderation process. Then there's also going to be, it looks like, some sort of crisis protocols that allows the EU Commission to require content to be removed in times of crisis. And then they have to also give law enforcement notice if they notice if they have suspicion of serious crimes. So, which I find interesting because when we think about the U.S. sort of U.S. goals when it comes to privacy. You know, Europe, <laughs> Europe does not have the anti-authority version of privacy that we do. So they're actually requiring large platforms to do some scanning and, you know, criminal investigation for the government. There are even more obligations for the biggest platforms, but I think you get a sense of how um, extensive this is. It's amazing. It is. It's just a remarkable uh, piece of work. And my biggest worry here is the entire 
Megillah is going to get dropped on Americans and their ability to speak and hear for the same reasons Tatiana said. You know, big business just wants one standard. And that's not just in the United States. They want it uh, with Europe as well. And so they're going to say, well, here, we know we can't get in trouble if we with the Europeans if we do what the Europeans say. And then when we get to the United States, if the government says, you shouldn't have done that, we're going to say, hey, we have a First Amendment right to crawl on our knees for the European authorities, and therefore you should bug off. Uh, and so we will end up with all the European anti-speech, speech-suppressive algorithms applied to us. Well, And yeah. perhaps, uh, Stuart, opening the market for uh, you know companies that uh, that want to take a different approach and don't want to play in Europe. Companies maybe like like Rumble. Yes, and some of these other, Rumble and 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 Musk's Twitter. And maybe Musk decides that Twitter will have Twitter Europe that follows these rules and Twitter US that used to a more libertarian you know, vision of the platform. But uh, yes. I mean, there, I think there's going to be demand in the U.S. market for a Digital Services Act free version of the internet. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, we've got a bunch of little privacy stories, and why don't we just see if we can move quickly through the other privacy stories of the week. Jane, microphones in your house listening to you, and then the data being used by Amazon to figure out what you bought. Is this a scandal, or is this what we signed up for? Yeah, it looks like what we signed up for to me. So the the researchers found that when you actually interact with a skill on, on Alexa, that data, much like if you were you know, typing in information into a search bar or something like that, that data winds up being used for targeted advertising. I, am, I would be surprised if this in any way conflicts with the, term, with the privacy policy in terms of service. And so to me, this looked like a nothing burger, but you know. <laughs> That's, that's how it looks to me. <laughs> that's uh, that, that's my guess. Uh, there was another article, uh, 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 another uh, paper released by Duke, which looked a lot at data brokers and the amount of information. Some of it pretty sensitive that can be acquired. It was a good paper. I went to their rollout over the week with my grandson, who found himself asked by the chair of the meeting. He said, uh, "Well." Uh, we've heard from uh, Stuart Baker, but we know from his podcast that he doesn't represent the views of his family. So do you agree with him or not? And uh, of course, my grandson sold me out. So there are real consequences to these uh, disclaimers that we put at the front of the show. It's a pretty good breakdown. Maybe a little unfair to data brokers. Doesn't really look at the arguments they would have made, but still some disturbing amounts of information being sold. Uh, Colorado and Connecticut now have privacy laws. I I think this probably represents the collapse of resistance to privacy law. It means ultimately we are going to get a national law because these laws are all different uh, a little bit. Mm -hmm. And the industry just says, hey, we're already trying to live up to these things. We can't tell somebody in New York that we're not going to give them privacy standards that we give to Coloradans and Californians. So I do think this is a significant development, even if the Colorado privacy laws sort of uh, tweaks the uh, California law in, a, in, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's because it tweaks it that, that, that what you're saying is, I think, absolutely right, that, that all of these bills are just different enough, or all of these laws, I should say, are, are just different enough. Colorado has been, I think, compared to, you know, the, the suggestion is that it's a lot like sort of Virginia's law, except that it's California-ish in the sense that the opt-out uh, 
the opt-out provisions are stronger, but it's different from California because uh, the law requires like a browser code for opt-out that should be universally recognized by all of the, by all of the, you know, websites and companies within uh, that, that are operating with Colorado users. And that's different. And so that's a different infrastructure. And, and so I think you're right, Stuart, that it just presses the case for a national law that for sure will have a state preemption in it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So two other cases, the Joe Sullivan case, this is a prosecution of Uber's chief security officer and general counsel over a hack that was magically transformed into a bug bounty. And uh, the man who oversaw that process, Joe Sullivan, is being um, charged with obstruction of justice and more recently with wire fraud. He has moved to produce records from his from Uber's files, which Uber says are protected, because he's basically saying, hey, I am being made a scapegoat. I think what's most interesting about this is that the Sullivan case is proceeding, because I think it's a big deal for CISOs to face the prospect of criminal liability, and maybe for the FBI, which wants to be able to go in and talk to the CISOs about their breaches and be their friend, and at the same time, be able to help the Justice Department prosecute them if they don't like the decisions that are made. Yeah. And Stuart, recall in this case that he's being prosecuted for you know, essentially failing to disclose a breach that the FBI agents did not ask him about when they interviewed him, that they, they'd interviewed about an earlier breach. And then this uh, second breach happened in 2016. And he didn't, the CISO didn't go back and tell the FBI agents. And they obviously you know, did not take well to his lack of candor about this. But it is, a, I think, a, a troubling case, you know, given that certainly at the t- I don't know, we're, we're inching closer to you know, once DHS finishes writing the regs to you know, data breach notification requirements of the federal government, but certainly none was in place at the time. And now Uber is going to have to turn over it looks like a pretty wide tranche of uh, documents, including attorney-client privilege documents. Um, so Sullivan can mount his defense. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, it, there's something weird happening in this case. After like 18 months while the case was moving toward trial, suddenly he was indicted for uh, a couple of very serious wire fraud charges. And this is basically, now he's accused of a material omission using a wire, which they could have been charged at the start and wasn't, which you know makes me think either they're mad at him for something, and my guess is they're mad at him for not flipping on the CEO, who would be a bigger head on the prosecutor's uh, wall. And, you know, uh, watching sausage being made is never very pretty, and this is the government using a lot of heavy leverage in order to get at somebody they clearly don't like, and that the current management of Uber is also very opposed to and uh, hostile to. So there's a lot of politics in this, but it's boiling down to a question of just how much of an obligation does a CISO have to tell the government about situations that, you know, they thought, I, I think you could reasonably say, he thought he had solved this problem by getting the guys who hacked him, who were clearly flakes and looking for to show off what they had done and get paid. He said, okay, we, we'll pay you, but you got to go straight. You've got to do it in, as part of our bug bounty program. You've got to destroy all the data. You've got to sign the NDA. And, you know, he was cleaning it up after the fact, and that's not usually how bug bounty programs work. But, I, you know, I think that you could make the argument that it was 
creative lawyering and that he had solved the problem. Maybe he hadn't. He, he just had he had, had the misfortune to be simultaneously talking to, I think it was FTC investigators about an earlier brief and, and not to tell them this was happening at the same time that he was going to his interviewers. And that obviously stuck in the craw of, uh, of the government. Yeah. Okay. And last uh, uh, but not least, the White House is going to the Hill and asking for a legislative package to deal with drone attacks. They have kind of limited authority to do wiretaps on drone signals back to the guy who's actually navigating the drone, which is obviously something that is necessary, but which required an exemption from like four or five different laws. And uh, it has a sunset, so they need to end the sunset or get the law renewed. And there's just a whole bunch of other things. I don't know, Michael, whether you worked on this stuff when you were on NSC, but it's clear now after you look at what's happening in uh, Ukraine that we're going to be living with drone attacks forever. And we need to make sure that our legal regime and our technical capabilities to respond to drone attacks are up to snuff. And they pretty clearly are not at this point, you know, local uh, authorities have no authority at all. The guys who run the Super Bowl have no authority at all to stop attacks by drones. Uh, 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 and we clearly need to rethink how our legal authorities work if they are in a position where the FAA is going to say, you can't attack a drone. It's a flying thing. And the, the federal law protects flying things. So that my, my sense is Congress needs to do something here, especially with the sunset. Yeah, we got some, but not all of the necessary authorities uh, when I was in government. It's time for Congress to go back and finish the job. Yeah. Okay. All right, Tatiana, Jane, Jordan, and Michael, thanks to you all. This was a real pleasure, uh, and we got it done just about as fast as I thought we would. Public service announcement, uh, if you know somebody who might want to work for the Cyberlaw Podcast, helping to produce it, please send a message to cyberlawpodcast.steptoe.com. We've gotten some good applications already, but we're eager to hear from the rest of you. I want to thank the Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 405 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.